Good morning. We're going to be looking at a, I think, familiar passage of Scripture. You've heard these words many times. It's found in the book of John in chapter 20 and verses 19 through 29. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to, with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas was one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We see it with Moses and Joshua. We see it with uh, Elijah and Elisha. We see it with Paul and Timothy. In each case, we've got what we consider a great servant of God coming to the end of his life and mission and then passing that on to another so that that mission might continue because the mission is what is most important. While men may die, the mission and the work of God must continue. We see something similar taking place in the ministry of Jesus. He had come himself on a mission from the Father. We call his coming the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He had come to be the Savior of the world. But he must return to the Father. And so he passes on his mission to his disciples. And in this way, 
what was begun with the incarnation, what we, what we celebrate, what Christmas is all about, but what was begun with the incarnation actually continues to this day. As Jesus was sent by the Father, that's the incarnation. So we are sent by him. That's our mission. The incarnation was his mission, and we are sent by him. That's our mission. What began with the incarnation is to continue today through us. And this is what we see in our passage today, and I've entitled it, The Incarnation Continues. John chapter 20, what we read. We celebrate the incarnation every year, as we should. But our celebration of the incarnation should remind us of the mission that, that we have must continue. And that's what Jesus came to do, and he's given us that mission to continue it. So let's look at the context of our passage. We're going to go today from the very beginning of John's gospel, where we've been looking at through December, to the very end. We're going to go from the birth of Jesus to his resurrection appearances. And no, I haven't confused the holidays. I know that this is Christmas and not Easter. But the two are tied together. We were introduced in John chapter 1 throughout the month of December as we, as we looked at John, John 1. We were introduced to the Word, and that's another title for the Son of God. We saw him as eternal. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, Whenever the, whenever the beginning began, the Word already was. It was in existence at the very beginning. We saw him, the Word, as with God, because John said the Word was with him. The Word was with God. And we saw the Word as God himself. John says the Word was God. John then said that this eternal word took on human flesh. This is the incarnation. This is the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. You know, ancient religions often told of their gods coming to the earth. But only in Christianity does the God take on human flesh so completely as to be conceived in the womb and actually born as a baby for the purpose of becoming our Savior. And the Gospel of John, as well as the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, Matthew, <clears throat> they tell us the story of how Jesus came to be the Savior. They tell of his life, his teaching, his miracles, particularly of his death and resurrection. In all of this, Jesus fulfilled the Father's purpose for sending him to be the Savior and to provide a way to eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. That was his mission. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, throughout the other Gospels as well. And when we come to John chapter 20, 
the mission of Jesus to provide that forgiveness of sins and the way to eternal life, that mission has now been accomplished. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus meets with his disciples to further prepare them to carry on the work which he had begun. And he gives, the, gives to the church her mission. He gives to the church her purpose. He gives to us, the church, our reason to be, why we are here, why we exist. So that's what we want to look at in our passage this morning. And we begin with his commission to the church. We look at the foundation of it in verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. Now, these events that we're talking about here in this passage take place on the day of resurrection. The evening of that Sunday in which Jesus arose. It's on that day, very first day. And when the doors were shut and the disciples shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, so the 12 disciples minus Judas, of course, and minus Thomas. We find out later that Thomas was not with them. So the 10 disciples there and possibly others disciples, followers of Jesus, a larger number could have been there. It's not explicit which way, but they were gathered together that night. They were gathered in secrecy. The doors where they were were shut. It implies they were locked. So they were fearful. Why were they fearful? Well, they knew what the authorities had done to Jesus, and they feared they might come after them as well. I think their fear is understandable. And although Jesus had told them that he would arise, and they had heard reports earlier that day from Mary and Peter and from the disciples that returned from Emmaus that, that he was alive. They had heard these by this time, but they couldn't comprehend it yet. And so while they were together that evening, on that first day, of the resurrection, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The impression is given that somehow Jesus miraculously appeared in their midst. Now, keep in mind, he was not a spirit. That will become very clear. He was not a ghost. This was his resurrection body, which is real. Yet, he was able to come into the house with locked doors. Either he miraculously unlocked the doors and came in through the doors, or somehow he miraculously appeared. And Jesus' first words to the disciples were, Peace be with you. Why might he say that, those words? because they were probably close to being frightened out of their mind. Jesus just comes into their midst. <clears throat> Verse 20, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. What's Jesus doing here? 
He is showing them. He is convincing them that he is the same Jesus that they had known, that had been crucified, and therefore, because he's there with them now, he had risen from the dead. He had conquered death. He broke the power of death. Now, before we continue, there, there might be a question here And that is, if Jesus is in his resurrection body, how can his resurrection body have scars? I mean, our resurrection bodies are supposed to be made completely new without all of the remains of the fallenness of this world being a part of it. And yet he says, look at my hands and look at my side. Those scars are still there. I believe the scars are unique to Jesus. I don't think we'll have scars in our resurrection bodies. I think the scars are unique to Jesus, and they are there as memorials. For all eternity, they will be memorials to us of his suffering. And when we see him, We won't look upon those as ugly scars, but as memorials of his sacrificial love for us. Those scars are holy. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Their fear was turned to joy. Jesus really is alive. Now, I'm not sure how much they really understood at this point of the theology and the implications of the resurrection, but they were convinced now that it was Jesus and he was alive after having been crucified and put to death. Can you imagine being there and trying to process that? I mean, like, what's going on here? We know he died. We saw him die. And yet here he is alive. He's got the evidence that he was crucified. I mean, trying to figure this out. We've had 2,000 years to try to, you know, figure out the resurrection and what it means. And, and they're there on that first day. You know, the, just imagine trying to process this. Like, what is this? What's going on? Well, what we have here, just in this little incident here, this really is the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of the church, the testimony based on historical evidence that Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead. And this is what changed everything for the disciples. That he had risen. That he is alive. It changed everything for the disciples. They saw. They knew. And they believed. And it is this that changed everything for the world as well. Well, we move on now to his commission to the disciples. After now, he has convinced them, shown them, given them proof, and they believe who he is, that he's alive, that he had risen. He now commissions them. Verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. He extends his greeting of peace once again. Now that they have some understanding of who he is and believing 
And he then proceeds to commission the disciples. Note these words. As the Father has sent me. Jesus is referring here to the whole idea of the, resur- of the incarnation. He was sent by the Father to the world to do what only he could do. And that is provide the means of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Only he in all of creation, was able to do that as the God-man. He was sent. He was deployed for the Father's purpose to provide salvation. As the Father has sent me. He was sent by the Father for this mission, for this purpose. And now, for this same purpose, Jesus says, I also send you for the same purpose. As he was sent to do the Father's will, only what he could do in the plan of redemption, he now sends us to carry out that plan. He did what he alone could do. He became the God-man to bear the wrath of God for the sin of all humanity. He has completed his task, his mission, and now commissions us to carry on the work for which he had come. Wow, what an awesome responsibility this is. He has entrusted the work of spreading the gospel and calling people to faith in Christ to us, to his church. Our mission as the church grows out of, just carries on the mission of Jesus and what he came to do. It's a continuation of what God purposed when he sent his son on the mission of redemption. The mission began with the incarnation. That's the purpose of the incarnation. And that purpose of the incarnation continues with us. Like I said, this is an awesome responsibility. How can we ever fulfill that mission? Jesus gives the power by which we can do it. Verse 22. And when he had said this, when he had commissioned us, when he had commissioned them, and commissioning us as well, but when he had commissioned them, he said... And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus empowers his disciples for the mission by giving them the Holy Spirit to breathe on them. Jesus, he's giving them in a visual way, if you will, he's giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. It would empower people to do the work of God. It came upon prophets. It came upon kings. It came upon others, judges and such, to, to, to do the work of God. <clears throat> so Jesus is now giving that spirit his disciples. And this spirit is the power 
to carry out the mission that he's entrusted to us. Put it in its context. He just commissioned them, and now he breathes on them to give the Holy Spirit. It's for the purpose of empowering us for that mission. <clears throat> now, another question. You might be thinking, well, what about Acts chapter 2? I thought that's when the Holy Spirit was given. Well, that is correct. What we have here in this room with Jesus and the disciples and then breathing on them is a preview of what will happen later on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out in fullness on the church for all future generations. Every believer subsequent to that time receives the Holy Spirit in coming to Jesus Every believer, when they come to faith in Christ, is empowered to carry out the mission to which God calls us. But Jesus is instructing the disciples. He's teaching them here. I'm commissioning you, and this is how you can do it. And he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. But what is the message? What is their authority as they go out into the world to, 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 to fulfill this mission? What's the message? What's their authority? Verse 23. I mean, keep this in context. Commission, empowerment, and now message. <clears throat> if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The message of the church, according to the mission given by Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins. That's what the message is. If you forgive the sins of any, if you retain the sins of any. The message is about the forgiveness of sins. That's what the message and the mission of the church is. It's the very thing of which Jesus speaks here. He commissions them. He empowers them. And then he says, this is what you're commissioned and empowered to do. This is what the mission is. Jesus gives the authority for that message. But, now listen carefully, that authority by which sins are forgiven or retained, that authority is not in any ecclesiastical body. It is not in any church council. It is not in any individual, pope or preacher or pastor. The authority for the message is the message of the gospel itself. No one can forgive sins but God. That's a given. But based on the gospel message... <clears throat> If someone believes in Jesus, then the church can say with authority, their sins are forgiven. Based on the promise of the gospel, that whoever believes in him, their sins will be forgiven, they'll have eternal life. We can say that with authority. Not our authority, but the authority of the gospel message and the promise of the gospel. And if someone rejects the gospel, the church can say with authority, their sins are retained. In other words, their sins are not forgiven if they reject the gospel. 
The authority comes from the promise of God in the message of the gospel itself. And this is the message that we've been given to proclaim. This is the message based on the very purpose for which Jesus came. He came to be the Savior, to provide for forgiveness of sins. That's the message that we have to proclaim as the church. We continue his mission and proclaim him as the only Savior of the world. So this is our commissioning. As the Father has sent Jesus into the world, he is sending us into the world. As Jesus came to reveal the Father and provide salvation, so we are to reveal Jesus to the world and proclaim the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins that he provided. So in a sense, the incarnation continues. Jesus' purpose for coming continues through us. So that's the commission of the church. Now we're going to look at the confession of the church. We're going to look at Thomas here. The natural state of doubt. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called Didymus. You know why he's called Didymus? The word Didymus means twin. Thomas was a twin. He had a twin brother. And so he was just, they just called him twin, one of the twins. Thomas, who is called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, Thomas had not been there with them on that first Sunday night. Okay? Verse 25, the other disciples therefore were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. So during the following week, the, the, the disciples got together with Thomas and said, hey, buddy, you really missed out by not being in church Sunday night. <laughs> they were excited about what they'd seen, and they shared that with Thomas. He's alive. Jesus is alive. But we're familiar with Thomas's response. Verse 25. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nail, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas, in spite of what they said, couldn't believe it. And the grammar here suggests that he was very emphatic about it. No way will I ever believe that. No way. He didn't know what to make of what the disciples were saying. He couldn't accept it. He couldn't really believe that Jesus was alive. And this is where the natural person is. They hear about Jesus, but they simply cannot believe. And then we have the credibility of faith. Verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. So this was one week later, eight days if including Sunday to Sunday, okay? Eight days later, one week, the next Sunday, 
Now Thomas is with the disciples as they've gathered. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. So once again, the same thing happens. They're gathered, and somehow Jesus miraculously appears to them in their midst. He's with them once again. And he said, peace be with you, the same greeting. But then he speaks directly to Thomas. Now, they would had no communication with Jesus in the intervening days. This is a new appearance to them since Sunday night. But Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said. We can see, he, it's, he knew the thoughts in Thomas's mind. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, without Thomas even saying anything, he knew what Thomas was thinking. He said to Thomas, reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put, put it in my side. I want you to see. I want you to feel for yourself the physical evidence. These are the scars of my crucifixion. Yes, I was crucified, Thomas. Yes, I died. But I have conquered death, and now I am alive and in a physical body. And he said to Thomas, Be not unbelieving, but believing. Jesus says, Thomas, this is what you must believe. This is the evidence that you need to believe. And what was Thomas's response? Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Some suggest that this is the actual climax to the book of John. That it all begins, we got all of Jesus' ministry and what he came to do and all his teachings and his death and resurrection. And it comes to this point right here where Thomas proclaims the words, my Lord and my God, this is who Jesus is. Thomas is saying, yes, I see it now. I believe it now. You are who you say you are. You are my Lord and you are my God. You died and you're now alive. You are the Savior of the world. This is the confession that one must make to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And Thomas is the model for this. His words to Jesus are exemplary of faith, convinced of Jesus' death and resurrection and the purpose of that death. The only conclusion is, my Lord and my God, this is who Jesus is. And Jesus then commends that very faith. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Jesus says, Thomas, you, you believed in me because you saw me with your own eyes and you felt with your hands. Therefore, the evidence was clear and you believed because you saw me. But Jesus then commends that faith of Thomas for all generations. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Who are they who did not see? Well, 
It would be the entirety of humanity after Jesus went back to heaven in the ascension. Because no one has seen Jesus. Maybe Paul, you could put him in there. But other than that, no one has seen Jesus. How do they believe? They believe when we fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to us. They believe by hearing the gospel message and the Holy Spirit that empowers us uses the gospel to open their hearts to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Lord and Savior. Do you see how Jesus here comes back to the commission of the church? People cannot believe this as Thomas did without hearing the gospel. And that's what we've been commissioned to do. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said. So now I send you. So the incarnation continues. We see in this passage that Jesus commissions us to carry on the work for which he came. He came to be the Savior, and we must proclaim that message. The church may do many other things, feed the hungry, assist the poor, work for justice for the oppressed, all scripturally mandated mandates, but the heart of our mission is the purpose for which Jesus came. Our mission is to proclaim him as Savior for the forgiveness of sins. The foundation of that mission is the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, that he is alive. The commissioning is that Jesus sends us into the world as the Father had sent him. We are sent to carry on what he came to do. We're sent for the same purpose for which he came. The power for our mission to do that is not our cleverness, our ability, our winsomeness, or attractiveness, or whatever, thank God. The power for our mission is the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. And the authority for our mission is the gospel message. All who believe can be assured of the forgiveness of their sins. And our mission is to bring people to the confession my Lord and my God, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Lord and Savior, that there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Him alone. So as we leave the Christmas season, as we do each year, as we are reminded of the reason and purpose for our Lord's coming, with the incarnation, the Son of God, taking on human flesh. Let's be reminded that the purpose for his coming continues through us. Each of us, we've been commissioned in that way, for that purpose. May we be reminded of that. <clears throat> and while the incarnation of the Son of God was a once-for-all historical event, there is a sense in which the incarnation, his coming, continues with us. We are to continue 
with his purpose of bringing salvation to the world and making the Father known to the world. The incarnation continues as we continue the work for which he was sent. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. May we dedicate ourselves afresh to this task as we enter another year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you had sent your that you have sent your son. That he came to do the work that only he could do as the God-man to provide the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we've been privileged to hear that message and believe that message because someone before us had been faithful to the mission that they had been given to proclaim that message to us. And we're grateful for that. Lord, make us mindful of the mission that we have that's been given to us as well. That we be faithful to our commission, faithful to the purpose for which you came and the purpose for which you've called us. Continue that mission to proclaim the name of Jesus as the only Savior of the world. His name we pray. Amen.